Thank you for tuning in. You're about to listen in on a very relevant and wide-ranging next-level conversation about the future of work life. And in this, we share innovative and practical ideas from innovative people and thought leaders from around the world. Our guest today on the podcast is Ollie Henderson. He's a work-life designer and CEO and someone who has spent more than a year now living, writing, researching, and speaking with thought leaders about the future of knowledge work and technology and helping us to connect all the dots. There are a number of key considerations and great takeaways as we talk about how winning has been redefined, how although technology has enabled so much change, it is us and our people who will be the key determinants of our ability to succeed. How we can learn so much about what to do next just from listening more to our people and to our clients, what a flipped workplace is, and how that can help us improve both our operations and our learning and development systems. And why everyone in our organization, including us as key leaders, need to design our days better in order to optimize for both flow and work outputs. So get your notepad ready because the future of work life is already here. And I assure you that there are several ideas you'll want to begin to implement right away. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we're reaching across the pond and we'll be speaking with Ollie Henderson, a work-life designer and CEO and we'll be talking about the future of work life. Welcome to the podcast, Ollie. Great to be here, Pete. Well, we so the listeners know we we connected earlier this year via the fact that we both designed and produced a Podstorm. Uh, myself at the end of last year, and you at the beginning of this year. Um, and for over a year now, uh, you've been living, writing, researching, and speaking with a number of future of work life related thought leaders, uh, as I'll frame them up uh, from around the world. Um, but not only that, you've been sharing and really trying to connect the dots. Um, I'm glad you're here today. I'm excited for our conversation. Um, but, but why and how did you get into this? Hmm. Good question. So uh, around a, a year and a bit ago, so 15 months ago, I exited the business I've been running for well, it was coming up 11 years. So I, I ran a digital advertising agency and I started that at the end of the last recession, 2009. Um, we, we grew that company through 10 years, had lots of success, but I'd reached the point where I just needed a new challenge. Um, I had three kids along the way and all of the pressures that come with that. I, I, I realized later, although I hadn't heard the expression really until much later, that I'd burnt out several times during those, during that decade. And I needed, I needed a break and I need to move on. So I, you know, after kind of extracting myself from that business, which is some of your listeners will know sometimes, you know, it can be challenging. Um, I 
exited last January and I was faced with the decision of what to do next. I mean, first of all, I had a non-compete clause for my business, which meant I had six months where I really couldn't do very much. And um, I'm not somebody who does very well with not doing very much. So I sort of undertook this this journey of self-discovery, some navel gazing, uh, where I thought, well, look, you know, first of all, I want to work out what the next 10 years is going to be like. And I want to do something really fulfilling and exciting and something which, you know, intellectually is is challenging at a time when things are changing so rapidly. And this was January 2020. And of course, I didn't realize quite how rapidly things would change several months later. But for me, what that meant was doing lots of reading and lots of writing. I, I wasn't really sure what to do next, but I, I thought, you know, I love reading. I consume books by the dozen every month. And I haven't done much writing for years, actually. And I, I really just immersed myself in it. And I, my idea was, look, perhaps I will discover what, what, what's next for me through this process. And actually, look, I mean, it was effective. And, and I didn't really know where I was going with it. I had no expectations. And over the course of several months, I was doing lots of writing. I started publishing some of that writing and getting loads of great feedback from, from lots of other people, probably similarly, similarly placed to me. Um, and I'd, I'd kind of focused on this challenge that we had was that, that work is broken for many people and how are we going to fix it and I made lots of um, lots of conclusions to the world um, the world you know limited world you know I mean I had limited publication at that point but lots of uh, um, assertions about all the way I thought it should be and of course then last March the world turned upside down and some of the assertions I was making which I think perhaps I thought were five ten years away happened overnight and uh, a lot of the themes I was writing about suddenly became really really relevant to so many people and I thought look you know why not take it up a level and I set up my newsletter future work life um, beginning of May last year and subsequently as you said I've, I've been speaking to lots of people business leaders industry experts um, lots of other people from around the world actually people like you who we've, we've we've become introduced through some of the initiatives we've been working on and, and then subsequently put start my own podcast and you know here we are. Hmm. So what have you, which, you know, that pause in a career or halftime event or, you know, that ability, it, so many professionals would love that opportunity to take a pause, take a time out, reflect on, you know, I've come this far in my adult life. What does the future look like? So congratulations on that, you know, that, that you, you were able to do it and took advantage of it. And at, at such a time when the world, I think the world is changing. Here's some ideas. Oh my goodness, the world is changing um, and <laughs> we're learning in real time. So what question, oh, so over the last year or so, um, 15 months, what have, what have you discovered? Like what have, from your position, what, what have been some of the biggest findings or sort of, sort of ahas that you've come up with along the way? Well, I've gone pretty deep into a lot of this stuff and, and, and along the way I've been doing some consultancy and advisory work. Um, I've been working with a data and tech consultancy, for example, who work on digital transformation projects, which suddenly became so in demand from companies whose whole world had to shift online. And I think a combination of those themes meant that clearly the importance of technology has become critical to us. I think we, we'd reached this inflection point, which allowed us all and I, and I talk and I say, oh, and I, I'm talking about knowledge workers, I suppose, people who right. who aren't aren't required to be in a particular place to work. But if I, so, if I use that term terminology, that's who I'm referring to. But I think for many people, and um, you know, the, the fact that we were able to work from home or work from anywhere was you know was enabled by technology. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about the way technology can facilitate this new way of working. But actually, ironically, 
the deeper I've gone, the more I've realized that the determinant factor for any organization in making success of this new world are the people. And, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, communication and empathy were critical parts of the way managers and leaders led their organizations. Um, and, and they remain so. Um, but I think also the ideas of critical thinking, creativity, context, those very human, very human characteristics have become so important, remain so important. And, and, and so that's, that's one point, I suppose. This is, it's driven by technology, but ultimately it's humans which are going to determine whether organizations thrive. But the other thing I think is around sustainability. And I'm not, I'm not talking about from an environmental point of view. I mean, you can make that case. I'm actually talking about sustainability from the point of view of people and companies. So I have spoken to, I don't know how many businesses over the past year, and many of the businesses I've spoken to, what you might call high growth or scale up businesses, you know, the types of businesses, which it doesn't matter if economic, economic times might be tough. They've got to grow, grow, grow. And of course, the assumption within those organizations often is that you drive people to the limit. And it's very true. No, no, I would make the case, and this is the case I've been making to many people, and, I th and frankly, I think people would agree, perhaps once I've explained it, that actually accelerating and sustaining long-term growth will actually be achieved by companies that empower people to work less. So I think, you know, I think flipping, flipping around this understanding about what success looks like is, is key to all this. And that's, you know, clearly a human, human characteristic, being able to understand our limits and also how to get the best out of people. Right. Well, let, let's unpack that a little bit. So empower people to work less, so presumably do more because these are high achievers. They just want to do more in life and work as a component of life. But what do you, in, in our listener base are professionals, a, a lot of high achieving professionals, leaders and managers and organizations on a personal level. So in individual levels, what do you think has changed? I mean, has the definition of winning truly changed on an individual basis, which if I'm in a leadership capacity, I have to realize that because that's the sustainable growth of my organization to sort of tap into what people want. But just on an individual basis, how do you think winning is now defined 2021 moving forward? How do you think winning is defined? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting point. So I think let's think about the, what's changed and what hasn't changed. So I mean, look, there's some really obvious stuff that's changed. I mean, undoubtedly, there's recognition that it's possible to do pretty much any knowledge work in places other than an office for the reasons I've just outlined around technology. Communication's changed. I mean, for most of the companies that I've spoken to, the way in which they do business throughout the day has changed as well. So the nature of meetings, for example, has changed. And the length of those meetings, the focus of those meetings. I actually, I read a stat yesterday which said that actually the change in the way that we've run meetings has meant that we've spent more time with clients and less time managing up. And to be honest, that's got to be a good thing. You know, we've, we've spent less time trying to perhaps please our managers and actually more time delivering on work for clients. So, you know, I'd say that's a healthy change. I think the certain things haven't changed and I think this will become clear probably as we return to the office in, you know, over the next few months, certainly in the UK, the plan is to return in June. And obviously this, this will be a gradual return. Well, I think what hasn't changed are the importance of being in someone's presence. I mean, personally, you know, I, you know, we've both worked in the workplace for 20 years and perhaps it'd be different for the next generation, but I still miss being around people. I still miss the fact, you know, that you're sitting across a meeting table from somebody and you get nonverbal cues. There's a, a, the point I always make is when you're having a heated discussion with someone in an office and you talk over each other, it isn't necessarily considered rude. It can be constructive, but the problem of doing it over Zoom, as soon as somebody talks over someone else, 
uh, appears rude and it really it can hinder the conversation so i think that social connection element has not changed i think we you know i think if you, you look at the most of the surveys the thing most people miss isn't going into the office. I don't think people miss the commute, but people miss the social connections and they are the social connections with your team, but also some of those informal ties, you know, the relationships you have across an organization, which aren't the people that you work with on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think that there's a few things which have changed and haven't changed from the point of view of winning. Now, this is a good point, isn't it? Because why do we talk about winning? What do we mean by winning? I think if we consider sports and I've, spent um in fact I'll give you an example i spoke to a couple of people on my last podcast top sports people one of one of whom was a guy called sean thompson who's a world champion surfer um and he had this great metaphor which i was talking about a lot around a year ago and he he wrote this thing called the surfer's code and one of those things was you can't swim against a riptide now i, I took that and it's my own interpretation um but I took that to mean that there are events greater than ourselves that we can't control. And look, COVID, frankly, was one of those. We had to just accept that sometimes you'd have to let the current take you. And I think people became accustomed to working in that way. I think the other reason, the other metaphor I kind of took from sport was something that um, Kath Bishop said to me. She was an Olympian, uh, a British Olympian. And she was a world champion rower, but she got a silver medal in the Olympics. And the British press after that medal were... I mean, what's the right way of putting it? It was disappointing. It was disappointed and disappointing. The commentator's reaction to her finishing second in the Olympics was, oh, Kath Bishop, she's only finished second. Where, of course, you know, we might celebrate the fact that someone gets a silver medal in the Olympics. And actually, that led her to years of soul searching around this idea of winning. You know, is your whole life defined by finishing first? And her conclusion, I think here's the analogy I draw with, with work and life, is that winning relies on so many things it requires everything to go right and external factors can sometimes prevent us from winning you know you take you know an umpire or a referee makes a wrong decision the weather's bad on a particular day and it affects your performance that's that's life isn't it and that's work right and not everything can go right all the time so i think from that point of view the i think our context or our understanding around winning was should have been different beforehand but maybe covid's just brought that up the agenda and i think i sort of find a point on that i think three things that kath bishop talked about which i think are a really important thing to remember and to come to, to, to a framework to look at how we view life and and success should be around and she puts it as the three c's one's a clarity of purpose and look that's what that's why i spent the first half of last year doing what's what's the point of whatever i'm going to do next you know there's a very simple question in life you know what is the point of all this the clarity of purpose there's a couple of other things though, and I think this is really important. One is connection. We all understand implicitly how important connection is now if, if we didn't know it before. And the last thing is constant learning. And again, I think if ever there's a time which has demonstrated that what you've learned, you, you know, we, the, the idea that you finished studying at 22 when you left college, it's crazy, isn't it, really, when you think about how quickly the world's changing. And I think we're all learning. I learn every single day. I think you, you, you're probably the same, Pete. You get people on, on the podcast and you learn. This is why we do it, right? It's part of the reason. We, le we learn stuff. And I think taking that attitude into the way that we work is really important. Understanding that we all need to learn. And it isn't just stuff to do with our profession. You know, we, you, you learn certain um, the fundamentals of architecture. Great. You know, that's really important. You'll learn throughout your life. But it's also around learning how to communicate and engage with other people along the way. And I think they're the lessons we can learn from from, from, from this whole experience. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, it's and what I draw from what you were just saying, too. It's it's 
being our best in, in our context, right? I mean, there's a little bit of the cards you've been dealt. How are you best playing those? But then positioning yourself maybe to get a better deck of cards. But, but, but to the extent you are dealt cards, realize that. And I like what you said about, you know, the, the purpose and connection and the constant learning because leaders can provide that, right? I, I mean, and I think people, high, you know, high achieving people will want to have success, but I mean, from an organizational development perspective, what is your mission and vision and set of core values, right? And does that lean into, do I want to be part of that purpose? Does that align with me? And, you know, do I want to have a connection with the people? The values are such that I want to connect with these people, yeah. right? Because they're going to bring me to that next level to allow me to constantly learn and be able to sort of work successfully, but then live successfully with, with all the things exactly. I want to accomplish. And um, so I think that that's great from a context perspective. Let's say from the work that you've been doing, let, you know, individuals sort of get this and, and even, um, you know, do you think that leadership is getting it? And I say like employers, which is really just individual leaders. Do you mm. think leaders get that at, at the leader level? Um, and that are really trying to exact some change in the organizations to attract and retain talent? I mean, I'd have to generalize, but I'd say most people get it. I think most people understand that something's happened and that they have to change. I don't know if they necessarily know how to change. I mean, this is, this is the thing, you know, I mean, you know, we're all experimenting. We're all trying new stuff out. And I, a lot of the conversations I'm having with people at the moment, there is sometimes the hope that you might have the answers. And when I say you, I mean me. <laughs> do you have the answer, Ollie? What do we do when we return to the office? How do we set it up? And I think, you know, I've realized clearly there are some pointers that I can give to people. You know, here are the types of things that you may need to think about. But the reality is it does depend on the individual. You said, you know, most employers or leaders, there are a team, but it often comes down to individuals and how the, you know, the how they approach management, but also how it affects their own lives. Because of course, this has not just been something we're having to manage on our team's behalf. We're, I think most, uh, lots of leaders have also experienced a different way of working and some of that stuff they like and some they don't. So I'd say most people do get it. I think if people haven't adapted, frankly, and found new ways to do it, they're probably not trying hard enough and they've got their head in the sand. Because in my experience, and I work with lots of, I, I work with business, I suppose, you know, mostly in professional services and technology and advertising, marketing. So I guess it depends on the industry, but I do think there's a recognition that we have to do things differently. And I think there are positives to come out of that. Most, in my experience, I think more, more companies have granted autonomy to employees. You know, I think you've had to, frankly, I think the, you know, the, the counterweight would be frank, uh, some of the, some of the practices around employee surveillance, which I've, I've kind of railed against um, in, in lots of the writing that I've done. And, you know, the idea that you should track every single um, movement of your employees throughout the day even when they're home is frankly just really creepy and counterproductive it shows a distinct lack of trust and imagination but I think most people most people have had to grant employees autonomy and I think that's a good thing I think with I think if you you, you have this sort of intentional approach to the way that you communicate and include people in the conversation it's really helpful and I think if you do that it also tends and this is my experience those companies that have got it and those companies that have made an effort at this stuff they have kept people, I think most importantly, and also it remains possible to get better people. And, and you know, cognitive diversity, I think, you know, is critical and will be critical as well as the job market changes over the next few years as a result of where people live and where people are based. Um, and I think, frankly, that, that translates to innovation and in whatever industry you're in. 
you know, innovation is clearly critical and the people, as I said earlier on, are going to be the, the, the key factor in whether we remain innovative. Right. And it is, it's a very dynamic situation, what you brought, because individually, we're, we're all adjusting ourselves to figure out what does, if at the top of the organization or, or in the middle of the organization, we're trying to figure out for ourselves what this means to us in our career and how we're going to work moving yeah. forward. But then if we have a, a, a position of leadership, well, what does that mean for my team? What does that mean for my organization? So it's very dynamic situation with multiple levels of variation. I guess, you know, one of the items that I come across often is there is an acceptance at a leadership level, or or at some point the the team gets to the individuals and the team gets to the point of, we have to make some changes. Hmm. Um, But then it's how do we implement some of those changes in the organization? And a lot of the ultimate success will come down to managers who by and large, be a little bit of a general statement, are overworked doing and selling the work. They're, man- they're managing people. They've got shorter budgets, tighter deadlines. They're some of the most overworked people in an organization. And then we're going to sort of cast some new change on them. Some, you know, And they're the ones that are going to make it happen. There was you know, a lot of times the variance of employee engagement. And so as you've been thinking about this and talking to different people, how do you, what do you think needs to change at management level and not really for those leader, those individuals in the management level who are feeling overwhelmed and, and, and consumed and maybe burning out, but from a leadership perspective of how we redefine the management position. But so when I think about it, it from management in that perspective, are there certain mindsets, approaches, or skills and processes that truly just need to change, like be re- reimagined and redesigned to be successful with any implementation, even if the top mm. gets it? You alluded to something when we, a few minutes ago, which is around the idea that leaders and managers can be those people that instigate change and can help people learn on the job. Uh, and I think, that's, I think that's an important point here. So the way I'd look at this, I like the analogy of, I'm not sure if you heard the expression of flipped workplace. So within, within education, the way in which a lot of the online um, or online platforms have approached education over the past decade, and this certainly has you know, been even more the case over the past year, is flipping the way in which people learn. So if you go back to, say, the Khan Academy or General Assembly, these are kind of new types of organizations on, on, on which you can sign up and do a course and it's kind of an idea of constant learning. So what they do, though, is change the way that you learn. So our, when, when, when we went to school, we would sit in a classroom and uh, everything was done in that classroom. We might go away and do some, you know, some, some dissertations and writing up and revision. But the way these organizations do it is flip it around. So actually what you do is you do a lot of the focus time, the reading, when you're at home in the space and in the environment in which you, you work best and can focus. And then you go into the class to spend some time with the course tutor your teacher and with other pupils and, and and that's the time where you discuss ideas and you collaborate and you indulge in some critical thinking and arguments positive arguments about the subject and i think you can apply that analogy to work i think if you consider right let's what's a simple way to approach what's a framework we can use to how we approach going back into the office let's assume that and this is typical of most of the surveys which have been done very few people want to go back into the office five days a week i mean that's less than 10 percent of people i think in the most recent one i let it read it was less than five typically what you get is between around 20 percent um 
want to go in say two days a week and 30% go in three days a week. So let's say 50% of people only want to be going to the office a couple of days a week. Well, what do you do with that time? Well, one way to approach it is to say, well, let's just flip around that relationship that we've had before. Let's make sure that the time people are at home, they spend on the, the meetings, which can happen anywhere. Frankly, if you've got a meeting with a client, it can be done over zoom, let's do it anywhere, do it at home. If you want to spend some time writing up a report, then do that at home when you can focus. Don't go into the office to do that. What do we do when we go into the office? Well, we engage in some of the activities of which are much more difficult via a medium like Zoom, in which we have single person talking, which we have a flat screen, where, as I said before, where it's much more difficult to read verbal cues. So I think the office becomes a space purely dedicated to meeting people, asking questions, brainstorming, making unexpected connections. Uh, and 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 the but going into the office creates that cultural cohesion, and that's I think for a lot of us who who are used to working in office, I think that's still important. I think it'll take a while to adjust to the idea that you can create a work culture purely remotely. So that's so that's key. And also the other thing it does is it puts the emphasis on an outcomes-oriented approach. So presenteeism, the idea that you can just see someone at their seat, that's just a thing of the past, or at least it should be. The, the key thing is finding out how do we measure things differently. How do we actually measure the success? and um, measure the contribution of somebody by the outcomes that they produce. And actually that is a pretty difficult question, by the way, for a lot of people, it's quite difficult to switch that mentality. But I think this idea of flipped workplace puts the emphasis on the outcomes oriented approach. And frankly, this is a opportunity because most of the businesses which have succeeded throughout um, this challenging time do have um, better understanding and a better grip on what drives performance. And, and most of those organizations have that, that sort of um, approach to performance. Right. And each, and each organization will be a little bit different of what their outcomes are, what some of those matrix um, would be for that. But I love the idea of the flipped workplace, the, the flipped learning and development, how we want to use our office time. It's not about presence and hours spent. It's about the outcomes. That being said, how, is there and knowing that as we work through this, it's going to be an evolution. We're going to learn, we're going to adapt. And, but from that switch, if we're redesigning how we think about work, it's again, not about the hours or the presence. It's about the outcomes, any best practices that you've seen evolving, or that you've heard like firms who want to take this outcome-based approach. And and it's a little bit of a mentality. And and number one, who's at the table to talk about that? And and what are some of those best practices that, that you're, you're hearing evolving sure well i wrote something a couple of weeks ago which suggested that maybe business models can sometimes be um an inhibitor to well-being in an organization and of course we've become again aware about well-being far far more over the past year than we were before i think and i think that's a good thing um but my 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 suggestion was that sometimes those organizations which are traditionally based on time and literally where you bill by the hour can sometimes incentivize people to work more um, without necessarily having a, a, um, a commensurate increase in performance. So my suggestion in that was that business model changes can affect that. And I've done a lot of work over the past year with businesses that, for example, are trying to introduce subscription-based models to the way, the way they work. And the, and the automatic assumption there is sort of media publishing, and I have worked with companies in that space, but actually companies in all sorts of sectors are doing that. I mean, take law, for example. Law is a profession that you typically pay by the hour and you typically pay a lot by the hour. Um, but um, I've seen some really innovative stuff around companies that are introducing 
subscription-based schemes. So then it becomes about the outcome there. So look, we've got a specific project to deliver. You're going to only continue with your subscription if we deliver you a consistently good job. And from our side, it isn't about time. It's about delivering a particular outcome and delivering a positive outcome. Now, those sort of business model changes, look, some of that's driven, clearly the outcome and the delivery of the projects is delivered by the whole team and comes from the bottom. But most, let's be honest, most of those conversations are at leadership level, at board level. You know, How do we adapt to this new world? Are there certain changes that we can make which are we gonna incentivize people both to perform at their best? And, and when I said earlier to, for people to work less, I don't mean work less and achieve less, I mean work less and achieve more. And that that is possible if we think about things in the right way. So so yeah, business model wise, it's kind of it's got to come from leadership. But if I go on to how do we actually achieve that in practice? Well, there's a, a really interesting, really good quote I heard from an author called Stephen Kotler, who I interviewed earlier this year. And he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. He's written about flow and how to achieve a flow state. And and the idea behind that stuff is you can achieve a disproportionate amount in a short space of time by getting all of the factors right. Now, he said this, he said this great quote, which is personality doesn't scale, biology does. And the reason I thought it was interesting is because I, th- I think maybe at the beginning of last year, I was writing about my own habits. I suppose I was, I was trying to share some of the positive habits I thought I had, which allowed me to get a disproportionate amount of work done in a relatively short period of time. So I, you know, I, 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 I wear it as a badge of honor that I don't work crazy hours now. I don't want to work crazy hours. I've, I've burnt out before. I don't want to do it again. I've got, I've got three kids. I want to spend time with my kids, but I want to be successful as well. So for me, it's about using my time re- in a really smart way. So I was interested in this idea because I'm conscious now that not everyone's the same as me. People, people, work better at different times of day. People have different commitments going on in their lives that they have to attend to. And, 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 and look, we're all, we've all got different personalities, but I do think there are certain factors which you, if you can get right, get the balance right, it does allow anybody to work better. So I, I've, I wrote an article about this. I can share it with you, Pete, to put in the show notes. I've got this idea that, and this is very, I'm trying to simplify everything I do. I, I try not to make everything anything too complicated. Basically, I can split my day into four parts. I, there's focused work, collaborative work, spontaneous time, and downtime. So I effectively, this is a bit of job design, really, for me, I can, I'm able to split my, my job down into its different components and say, well, look, you know, if I need to spend some time analyzing a problem, looking at some, uh, doing some analysis of some numbers or writing a report, I need some focus time to do that. And I block out that time in my diary. Now, I have to coordinate that with my, the people I work with. You know, I have to ensure it doesn't overlap with client meetings or doesn't overlap with team meetings. But what you find is if, if everyone in your organization starts working like this, you start designing the day so that there isn't too much overlap between the time people might want to spend focused on, um, on, on sort of heads down activity on deep work. And likewise for co- collaboration, you know, there's certain times a day that I collaborate better. So I, I prefer to do my focus time in the morning. I wake up early, I work best in the morning. I like to do my focused work then. Then I have a little lull where I just do my admin and then ideally in the afternoon, that's when I do my collaborative work. And look, not there are people who work very differently. The guy I work most closely with at the moment, he's the complete opposite to me. He likes working at night. So we have to try and overlap our time and design our schedules to match up. But that's entirely possible. And I think this is the thing. I think this is an opportunity to take a step back and say, look, yes, 
we have to we have to rethink many of the ways we work and some of those some of those things include as individuals how do we work best how can we get the most out of ourselves and from a management point of view enabling people to do that empowering people to do that it can seem like a lot of work at, at the beginning because how do we possibly coordinate all of this time but you don't get it right straight away but if you do get it right you start seeing people performing better being less tired having to work less crazy hours and the outputs the outcomes are just as positive as they were before so it's kind of a you know a time to reflect on things and think is there a better way to do it and um you know i i think from that point of view there's loads of opportunities here but again it does take it takes you know the, the word intentional is thrown around a lot but again you have to be intentional about this stuff you have to understand that it takes a bit of a bit of practice and a bit of um, iteration, but actually, if you get it right, it can significantly improve everybody's work, but also their well-being as well along the way, which is really important to me. Right. I mean, what what stands out to me, what you just said, is um, it's like a personal responsibility. It's the self-discipline to really think of a better way to do it. How do you work? And is that the biological, that, that scales? If you really align your workday with how you're, you're kind of wired in a sense that you will be able to sort of scale your output. Yep. But there is that, I'm going to figure out what really what works for me. And then there's the, how am I going to align that with my team? I mean, one element with the, with the outcome-based metrics, right? <clears throat> is thinking through, I mean, there's in, in a lot of disciplines and a lot of work, there's the practitioner. I've learned how to do things and there's really 47 steps to doing it, but I've been doing it so long, I think there's only 10. And so when I when I tell someone what to do, I, I'm only giving in those 10. And, 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 so there, and so there's this, I need to become a better delegator, number one, to realize there are 47 steps. And then, but I can't even tell someone what to do, I need to teach them how to do it. And in order to do that, I really have to look beyond the task. What is that output I need? What is that outcome? And it is that deeper thinking of going back and what was successful. What does the client really look for? What does the scope of work say? But what is the client really looking for? What's that client experience? What's that outcome they're looking for? And then kind of dial that back to who's the individual I'm working with and what outcome can they produce that then I can use and coach and coach and mentor them on to get yeah. them to that next spot. But there is, it, it's a lot more than just sort of delegating some tasks away, yeah. but I'm not sure a manager or a leader will get to that spot to be able to do anything other than delegate. And I'll check in with you next week or next month, the day before the deadlines do, if they don't take the time to personally invest in how are they working and what outcomes do they want from their team and then let's fill the gaps on how to get there. And so there's just a ton in the last few minutes of what we've been talking about. But I think it is a, a mindset shift that has to happen. And how do you enable that? Because we probably do have the skills. And it, we've just got to think about things a little differently and logically. Yeah, no, I, no, I mean, I think some of this stuff can seem really overwhelming. Right? I, I, I know from personal experience, and I can see it around me among my friends, some people feel so overwhelmed with work and they don't possibly see how, how it could be any other way. Now, here's a, here's a thing which managers can definitely do in that situation. First of all, recognize it because, you know, that's a, that's a road to burnout. And you, you literally wrote the book on burnout, please. So I, I can't tell you <laughs> about this, but you know, the, the road to burnout is, and it's not just about overwork. You know, there's, you develop a cynicism about your role. You, 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 you become disengaged with the stuff that you're doing. And this is the end. This can be the end result if we don't facilitate people working in a different way. Now, I reckon the the 
90% of the time when I speak to people around this subject, the biggest challenge they've got, well, it's, it's overwork, but it's also the way they use their time. So how many companies have just translated the way that they worked offline to online and are doing five, six, seven hours of meetings a day? So many companies, so many companies are doing this. And look, I think people have improved over the past year, but that frankly means we all know, we all know there's a problem with meetings, but we still haven't fixed it. Right. So what do we do about it? Well, you know, I've, I've heard a few companies who've radically uh, taken a radical approach to the way they're meetings and just strip them all out and see what, see what breaks, just dis- get rid of all your meetings and see what breaks and gradually add them back in. Now that takes, that does take some, uh, well, that takes some, yeah, <laughs> takes some courage. Exactly, that's the polite way of putting it. Um, but 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 it can help. I, I listened actually. I listened to a podcast this morning. I know you, you and I share a um, a love for listening to many many podcasts. So I listened to a podcast this morning, Danny in the Valley, which is a really good tech podcast, um, and it had the CEO of GitLab. Now GitLab are very unique in that they have for their whole um, time in business been entirely remote. So it's set up in 2012. They are a tool for DevOps, so developers. And of course, this tends to lend itself better, wholly remote organizations, we think, to engineering uh, from a development point of view. But I think more companies are seeing it's a possibility. Now, the way they approach meetings are are that meetings are expensive. That's That's their line on meetings. Meetings are expensive. They do everything they can to avoid meetings. And I think... There's, there's some logic to this and there's some logic from what they do and is also replicated with, with, with what Amazon have done for years and years, which is meetings are a place to make decisions. They're not a, they're not a place to, to talk about the background. We, everyone should know that already. And actually a lot of the time, meetings should be about making a decision. And some of the time, for example, that Amazon spend in meetings is reading the document which the meeting leader has prepared in advance. So the idea is that you take away some of the bias, for example, that, you know, perhaps in a typical meeting, what happens is the most senior person takes control and any decisions that are made tend to replicate the thinking of that leader, however much we try and facilitate open conversation. And also we tend to think about superfluous things which aren't relevant to the end decision that are being made. So let's get to what the meeting's about. So, you know, here's, here's the thing that I do. And again, it can seem abrupt, to some people when i put this to people first of all i say unless there's a good reason for a meeting i don't want to do it and i know that's rubbed a few people up the wrong way over over the years you know i think some people think that that's a it's a brush off you know he doesn't want to meet well actually i'm not saying that. i'm saying your time is as important as mine let's not spend this time in a meeting unless we really have to and what's the agenda and typically here's here's a little tip that i would use for meetings Ask questions. What are the questions we need answered at the end of this meeting? So when I do an agenda for a meeting, every bullet point is a question. And if we haven't, we, as soon as we've answered that question, we move on. And if that's in two minutes, the meeting's over in two minutes. And if we get to, we, and and again, I think this is all recontext. It's it's reframing the way that we want to work. And you, it's never too late to change that. It can take, you know, you might lose some people along the way. Some people might not like working at that way. But ultimately, the, the intention here is to make everybody better at their jobs to achieve more. And I think the reality is we have to make some fundamental changes to be able to do that. We can't just assume that things were right beforehand. That's, that's my take on meetings. Right. Well, I mean, but <clears throat> what it is, is, I mean, a meeting could mean back in the day last year, I mean, a meeting <laughs> could be, you know, we're going to have a meeting and, and everyone comes at a different level of preparedness. People have different agendas they want to bring out in the meeting. 
this, what you're just describing is we're being very specific. There's a goal for this meeting. This meeting is about making decisions. So you need to do your homework. You need to read the package and we're going to make the decision. We're, we're, we're going to have a discussion. We're going to have a, you know, decisions going to be made, but we're not going to be talking background. That's not the, you know, and, and if you, you come to the meeting like that, well, maybe you shouldn't be on the team. I, oh, this is pretty extreme. But then we can define this other meeting as it's collaboration. Like the, the, the idea for this meeting is it's creativity. We want that sort of the, the serendipity. We want the collective yeah. intelligence and, and we want to be able to innovate. And we're, brain, we're not making a decision, but we're coming with new ideas. And that's the purpose. And when we, when we have 12 new ideas that we're going to ruminate on and come back in two weeks to discuss and make a decision on, that's it. So we're not going to just, you know, be creative and then make a decision. And so you're segmenting. And so you're much more effective. I mean, we're showing up differently, the different expectations, and it's almost that flipped workplace in a way. The homework doesn't happen in the meeting. Yeah, I, I'll just show up to this meeting and, and it all, you know, we all drizzle it out. It's like, no, the expectation is you're going to have your stuff together and we're coming in for this purpose. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and thanks for clarifying that. I mean, this is it. I mean, I, I've come from working in a creative background in the past and that's really important. And I think the, there's, there's two things to say about that. One, that there is definitely evidence to suggest that those serendipitous moments, first of all, they happen often between, I think I mentioned earlier, between cross-functional teams. So actually, you know, that's why being in office sometimes is pretty useful um, or having interactions with people you don't ordinarily work with. And by the way, there are some technologies which are kind of trying to recreate that, that idea. There's these the kind of virtual water cooler idea where you have a, a coffee with someone who you don't normally work with day to day for 15 minutes and just get to know them. Because actually, aside from cultural uh, benefits, that can be good from um, a uh, from the idea of innovation. But yeah, no, you're right. I, I don't I'm, I'm not saying that there is not a value in sitting in a room virtual or otherwise with people to think of ideas, but it's understanding that that's the point of the meeting and still setting the parameters around it. And, and I know that sounds contradictory in a sense. I, I talk about spontaneous time and it's, it's like an oxymoron saying, I'm going to plan for spontaneity, right? That's, and, and, but, but my point here is that you have to allow some flex in your diary for those moments. But equally, there are some precious moments that if you've got your day fragmented by lots of little meetings or lots of long meetings, how can you possibly get in any flow and actually achieve very much? So again, it's it's about designing your day. So for example, the one easy thing that I've implemented in companies that I've worked with uh, over the past few years is, and I start off small, do it one day a week, between nine and 11, nobody there's no interruptions i can't be interrupted and if people want to do the same thing you could put it in your diary nine to eleven no inter no one interrupts and and that you start with one day you might do that two days a week or three days a week depending on your role depending on the organization but having those boundaries suddenly people understand okay that's the time that ollie's going to get work done and at the end of it i've got often got something really valuable to show for it so people know i'm not sat there wasting time um, but it's also i think signaling from management and leadership that it's okay to do that stuff yeah, and this is what's really important. You know, what, what we want leadership to be doing is saying not, you know, we don't want them to say, look, I spend all day in meetings like it's something to boast about. We want you to say, look, we want you to be as effective as possible for the organization and for your career. And you, that might mean that, um, you know, you only have three hour, a three hour block in the day where you do your meetings and the rest of the time you have heads down focus time. But the point is, have, have a think about it. Have a think about the best way for the company to work. And as managers, work with the individuals, collaborate with them to understand how best that they can work. And, and what you find is it doesn't take it doesn't take that much thought to say, well, 
If I spend 20 hours of meetings a week, fine, if that's the case, but maybe bunch them together and have some time out of meetings rather than, you know, that typical situation, which we see is you work, you know, you work nine to five, nine to 10, you've got a meeting, you've got 15 minutes off and then you have another meeting and you, you never have more than 15, 20 minutes to have a little break. And that's a really bad way to work. There's no opportunity there to, to, to flow. And also context switching, as you know, I think in most, in most experiences, is a really poor way to work. And you never have actually any time to, to really focus on, on the challenge. Right. And that, and that will lead to, to you know, that, that switch tasking. And, 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 and the fact is, I mean, from a awareness, we, we live in a world that is the communication. It's in inbox inboxes, direct, you know, direct messaging, it's Slack, it, it's this unscheduled asynchronous communication that we mm -hmm. can get sucked into that, that world and layer on meetings on top of that. And I think that the idea of deep work and flow state is absolutely critical. And, and this can tie into how we get into meetings. If I know we're going into a creative meeting, there's a whole different mindset. If I'm writing a proposal, there's a whole different mindset. If, if I'm designing a new layout for this new client issue. There's a different mindset than if, if I'm reviewing a set of plans or reviewing somebody else's memo. And so in order to get in the flow, like I've got to know I'm in creative flow because I'm writing a proposal or I'm in the, I'm doing a performance review flow. And mm, so yeah. I, I think that's the, that's the idea of, you know, it's about designing your day. And I, I think that's, that's a prime takeaway because you, we, we have to get into the different flows, not just flow in general, but yeah. different flows for the different tasks that we need to accomplish, especially if we're at manager and leadership levels where we don't have the same brain on every day. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but if we go meeting after meeting, e email after email, it's going to be mush anyway. We won't be good at anything. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. No, you're so right. And look, and, and, and this is really important for the people you lead. But it's like this, you know, the analogy I often talk about with well-being and burnout is, you know, when you get on a, well, you won't, most people won't remember this because it's been so long ago, but when you get on a flight and uh, <laughs> you, you have the safety thing at the beginning, right? And when you've got your kids with you, they say, look, oh, uh, you know, responsible adults, make sure you put your life jacket on first before you look after your child. Yeah, because it makes sense, right? Because how, how are you going to look after them if you haven't sorted yourself out first? And this is very much an analogy I, I take to well-being. Think about yourself. Because if you can get the best out of yourself, you'll get the best out of your team. And also, if you've thought about the way that you work and started to test some things and understand how your work schedule can be better, that means you can then share, share those learnings with other people. And it has a dual benefit. One, they can learn from you, but also they know that it's okay. And just to, just to repeat, a lot of this stuff, we have to make sure that people understand that it's okay to work in a different way. And that's all about signaling. And I think that's what some organizations get wrong. Unfortunately, it, it's typical entrepreneurs business leaders they've often reached that position because they've got so much drive and determination to succeed that and it probably it's probably greater than some of the people that work for them the, the problem is if everybody sees that assumes that's the only way to work then unfortunately we often we see the rising cases of burnout so i think it's look after yourself but then show other people that it's, it's better to work in this considered way which ultimately builds relationships, trust, and collaboration at a whole new level, which will, you know, be more engagement and loyalty versus the, I'll, I'll be part of the 40% of people Microsoft and LinkedIn think are going to leave their organizations yes. in the next, you know, six to 12 months because of, yeah. of how they're responding to sort of back, back to the new normal. I, I do, I, we've got to close here, but I wanted to touch on one subject, um, sort of extending out that there is, um, the, the rise of the, the independent um, 
portfolio career or professional freelancer. How, how do you see that? Do you see it as something that, you know, it's, it's present? Do you see it as something that's emerging as time goes on from a business model perspective that organizations are going to want that, knowing that, you know, people might come with advanced business acumen and, and maybe some management capabilities, but also the specific skill sets? How do, how do you see that from an organizational perspective? And then, you know, from an individual perspective, do you see interest in that from a practitioner basis? I absolutely see the trend. As I said, I've been working with some tech organizations and I think perhaps tech is a little further ahead on this stuff. And I think, you know, the example I gave before of GitLab, you know, there are quite a few cases of wholly remote distributed organizations within tech and and the the development world. And, and, And therefore, I think the market is a little more mature in that sense. So there are organizations and platforms like TopTal, for example, which is a platform for developers where you get really high-end developers who are available. Now, the perfect, let's look at this from a economic point of view. The perfect balance of value for an organization offers a combination of competitive fees available by going direct to consultants, but also with the low transaction costs of associated work, working with a larger firm. So what we'd normally do is employ a large firm. We work with a, a single organization, but they're bloody hell, they're expensive. Now, what we're saying here is some of these platforms can, they can essentially remove that transaction cost of fine working across multiple suppliers, multiple vendors, but you get the best people. So from that point of view, economically, it makes a whole lot of sense for organizations who want to use that model to bring talent in. Now, from the talent's point of view, you know, you know, look, it's really difficult. We, you know, you know this, Pete, as a consultant, as a, as a, as a, um, a, a sole trader, a, you know, a lone wolf, it can be, take a lot of time to go out and find business. You know, sometimes it just rolls in, but on those occasions where you have to go, it takes a lot of time. Now, these platforms can actually reduce that gap as well, because if you're good at what you do and you're highly skilled, you have got the distribution, which is available through this platform. People can find you. So that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and actually, I'm seeing this across other industries as well. There's a really great company in, uh, based in the UK, but they've got, they're, they're, they've got operations around the world called Talmix. They're applying a similar model to consultants. So you see this within sort of professional services and management consultants. I think it will, it's inevitable that this will become um, more popular. And, and I guess what it is, is it's the gig economy, but for highly skilled workers. You know, it's, it's the, the gig economy had so much promise, but of course we, our association with it a lot of the time is a kind of race to the bottom, kind of driving down the wages of people delivering food or people driving you in a cab. So uh, I think we're, we're definitely going to see it. I think it reflects also a general trend towards decentralization within work. I think we're going to see that in terms of geographic location. You know, people could be based anywhere and work for any organization. I think we might also see it, and I don't probably a bit deep to go into today, but maybe on the next podcast we can do this. We, could, we it, it refers to remuneration as well. I think there's going to be really innovative ways around how you reward people. And, um, and I think we're going to see the trends emerging over the next sort of five years related to that. But I think, yes, I've, I've already seen it because I'm working in that world. I don't necessarily crossed into every industry yet, but vertical specific platforms for this will definitely arise. And it would, will arise for talent in architecture, engineering and every other industry out there. Right. We, well, we've seen it and, and, and uh, uh, we've been involved with some of those platforms and, and businesses having that flexible business model. I mean, one of the sort of the aha elements is, you know, if we have a, f- a flexible hybrid blended workforce, 
we're one, it, it, it's easy connection now to have someone who's not in our geographic area, a, a remote independent employee come join mm-hmm. because the processes and systems that are needed for remote hybrid workforce are the same processes and systems to accept an independent professional freelancer exactly. who can come in and you know has the benefit of employment, although they're not employees or contractors, without the burdens of employment. So the, the benefit of employee without the burdens of employment. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I've been calling it, we've been calling it the, the, the mixed hybrid model. Mm-hmm. So it's not yeah. just a hybrid model, it's a mixed hybrid because you have a, a blend of independent and, and full-time employees. So, well, I appreciate yeah. that, you know, th- that, that type of conversation, because it is, it, it's just an element that businesses will have to take moving forward and independence, you know, will people will want to have an independent career. It, it's already yeah. happening. And I, I do see it across verticals. Yeah. Um, and I want to be, we could keep talking about this and I'm excited yeah. for our next conversation already yeah, as we definitely. dive deeper into some of this, but how, as we look to close, is there anything else you'd like to share or add um, future of work related to um, that we haven't covered or that you'd like to share with leaders and listeners? I mean, perhaps I'll just reiterate some of the, some of the lessons I've taken from the past year and um and some of the applications of these ideas that I see businesses using. And because I think sometimes, as I said earlier, it can seem incredibly complicated and overwhelming, but there's just some simple rules around this stuff, which works really well. I think just listening to what your staff and your partners and your clients want from work is really important. You can just learn a lot by listening and then test and experiment. You know, I think if everybody understands your staff, your clients that you're testing out a new way of working and the intention is to work better and for your teams to be more engaged and produce a better quality of work that's better for everybody if everyone understands that you're entering a period of experimentation and testing they can also accept that not everything goes right you know the nature of experimentation is that you don't get everything right and i think if you go into this thinking we're going to make a change and if it doesn't if it doesn't work we're going to fail then that's not good for anyone it's not good for leadership it's not good for the managers having to implement it and it's poor for morale among among the staff i think it can be an exciting change if we say we're entering a new phase of work this is this, we have the opportunity to make it better and some of the stuff we're going to get wrong, some of the stuff we're going to get right, just like every other aspect of the, the job that we do every day. And I think from that point of view, you know, as I said earlier on, technology can be an enabler with this, but I don't think that it is the key factor. I think people remain the critical determinant of success. Um, and from that point of view, it makes me pretty optimistic about, about this stuff because I think we've all shown a lot of resilience over the past year. We've all shown our ability to adapt to challenging situations. And I think we just need to think positively about creating new opportunities. And, and, and as I said, listening and communication, they're, they're critical to this. Well, excellent. Well, well, well said. I, I love that conclusion to this. How, how can listeners get in touch with you to learn more about um, access your blogs, access your podcast and, 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 and more about all of that you're doing? So best place to go is futureworklife.com. So my newsletter is called Future Work Life. I write, I try and do it every week, not always successfully. Um, I, and I, I write a newsletter about various aspects of work. Some of it's more work related, some of it's more life related. I've also got a podcast called Take My Advice. I'm not using it. It's available on all good podcast platforms out there. And I, I speak regularly on the subject, so you can find information about that on, on LinkedIn if you follow me on LinkedIn or connect on LinkedIn. And um, yeah, I work with organizations around consulting and advisory work on this stuff, but also regularly speak at events. So feel free to, to reach out to me to connect and uh, love to hear what people are, are doing related to all of this stuff. It's, it's such an interesting time. It sure is. Well, Ollie, I want to thank you 
very much for coming on the podcast and sharing. Um, and I continue to enjoy all of our discussions. All right. Cheers, Pete. All right. Take care. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please also share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to continue to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. And it also helps to get the word out to others so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.